is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Now, on today's show, we're talking about a hazard that is probably not front of mind for you, but it's actually a silent killer. We're talking all things heatwave. Heatwaves are one of the most dangerous hazards facing our communities today. And with the growing impacts of climate change, it's becoming even more dangerous for us and our communities. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today to unpack this critical conversation? Josh, today on the show, we're joined by Professor Ben Zajcik from John Hopkins University. Ben is a climate scientist in the Department of Health and Planetary Sciences at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, focusing on hydroclimatic variability. He holds a PhD in geology and geophysics from Yale University, a master's in soil sciences from Cornell University, and a bachelor of arts in biology from Harvard College. Today on the show, we'll be asking Ben all about heat waves and what we can do to minimize their impact. We'll also discuss climate migration, early warnings, heat islands, humidity, and unlivable cities. So find some shade, grab an ice block, turn up that air conditioner. We're soaking up all things heatwave with Dr. Ben Zajcik here on Me, Myself and Disaster. Ben, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much, Andrew and Josh. It's great to be here. So to get us started, so Josh and I were over in Asia just recently and the heat, it felt so thick, it was impossible to escape it. And day and night for weeks on end, it was just so hot. And now look over in Europe and the same thing is happening there. Uh, It's been, I think we've heard that July is now the hottest month in modern history since records began. Are heat waves becoming more common? Yeah, they're absolutely becoming more common uh, and they're becoming more intense. They're becoming longer. And this is entirely what we expect to see, that the planet is warming on the whole. And as it warms, we're also getting more and more extreme events. So not only is it hotter on average, but these heat extremes are going to be particularly exacerbated. And is that, this is probably the obvious question I wanted to ask, but what role does climate play, uh, climate change play in, in the increasing frequency of these heat waves and the severity of them? And are we pretty confident um, in terms of attributing that to climate change? Yeah, so at this point, we're quite confident. Um, you know, the, in terms of the attribution science on climate change, heat waves are one of the easier ones to attribute because it's such a direct impact of warming. And so mm. we've seen that some of the attribution studies have shown by looking at the historic record versus the recent trend and the projections and models that the kinds of heat waves we've seen over the last few years would be practically impossible. They would you know, be events that would be so incredibly rare in the absence of this greenhouse gas induced warming. So we're pretty confident uh, when we say that these intense heat waves are an anthropogenic or a human caused phenomenon. It's a pretty um, scary thought, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and it was um, it was the UN Secretary General I think was was saying overnight in some of the media that you know we are moving away from this notion of warming to to boiling and 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 that is a an extremely scary um, thought to think about. But in terms of the mechanisms, because I, I know there's been some discussion about what is the impact of humidity in heat waves as well, and that wet bulb versus dry bulb. Can you kind of for those that aren't familiar with some of these more technical terms, Ben, um, you know, walk us through that and then the impact on heat waves with humidity. Yeah, that's a really important point when we think about the impacts that heat is having on human health and on ecosystems. 
And so when you think about it, um, we've all been, or many of us have been in these situations, maybe in a drier area um, where the temperatures will be really high. But you say, oh, but it's a dry heat. It feels okay. And, and why mm. is that? It's because you sweat, right? And so you thermoregulate. When you have humidity on top of high temperatures, your body is much less efficient at shedding heat, right? You can't sweat as effectively because the sweat's not yeah. evaporating off your body. Um, and so that is what we call, uh, you know, a, a humid heat wave. And it's expressed in terms of wet bulb temperature or heat index or sometimes a humidex is used. And those are all indices that are trying to capture the fact uh, that it feels worse. That's more harmful, certainly to our bodies and to, to other animals um, and ecosystems when you have a humid heat. Mm. Um, and I'll just say personally right now, I'm in, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. And oh, it's miserable. You know, we've been out in this, and uh, it's going to get even worse tomorrow because we're we're right here on the coast. You know, here in North America. So when we get these heat waves, they're humid heat waves, and it's really dangerous. So, so following on from that point, because I think that it's really interesting to actually understand. And I know a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, from uh, you know frontline emergency services or working in the policy space for emergency management. And sometimes think of, uh, you know, when we think about the natural hazards for disasters, you know, our bushfires and our floods. But many people don't actually know that heatwave is actually the number one killer uh, in terms of when we have a natural hazard. And I think that becomes a surprise to people. So, go, well, how, how does that happen? Like, it's just, it's just heat. But can you kind of take us through what are some of the health outcomes for communities impacted by these heat waves? Like you mentioned there before around, um, you know, perspiration and then the impacts of that on your body in terms of humidity. But what are some of these health in outcomes or implications that we suffer or that are killing people when it comes to heat waves? Yeah. And so, you know, we call heat the silent killer because it's not as dramatic as some of these other disasters. Uh, however, um, as you said, it is the leading killer. And so this comes from direct heat stress, certainly, you know, uh, it's particularly we are worried about people who are outdoors, um, those that can't find shelter either because of their work environment or because they don't have access to cool spaces, people who are indoors but don't have access to air conditioning or don't have um, the economic means to turn on their conditioning or sometimes. Mm. Um, and there's a direct physiological thing here, right? So that, that you can just have this heat stress that just it strains the body, especially when you have these intense heat waves at last a long period with high nighttime temperatures and the body just can't cool itself down. And then you've got complications of underlying conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And so people aware of it or not, right, might have things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disorders is a big thing in older adults, right, where you have trouble um, with your breathing and that's exacerbated by heat. Asthma attacks, much worse with heat, cardiovascular. And this all has to do with the effects that heat have, has on our ability to, you know, circulate the blood in our body, our ability um, for the, uh, inner organs to function. And so you have multiple pathways, some of which you can say, oh yeah, that was definitely the heat did it because that person just collapsed mm. in the sun. And other yeah. times where it's like, oh, that was a heat stress induced complication that led to a death or to a, a morbidity, right? Sometimes it's yeah. not just death, but other, other uh, health impacts we're seeing that then you can trace back to heat and you do that by looking at, well, what are the physiological processes and also epidemiologically like oh wow we're seeing we see a lot more of these kinds of complications when it's mm. hot that makes sense even if the etiology right involves factors uh, that are more complicated than simply collapsing in the sun so so just 
I'm trying to get in my head the scale of this problem because for me, as you start to talk through, you know, that issue around comorbidity, comorbidities, and I know that, you know, Andrew and I aren't health experts, but, you know, from the from the media we consume, it's very clear that, um, you know, there are more chronic diseases in our population based on, on a range of factors, our diets, our physical activity, how we as humans live our lives is obviously changing and, and leading to a change in that. And then we and then we put on top of that heat waves and in an increase in heat waves uh, happening around the world. Are we looking at potentially an exponential kind of scale here of problem in terms of those two issues mixing with each other and becoming potentially a, on a catastrophic scale? Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way. Uh, we have a term that we use um, in public health called syndemics, right, where you have multiple things happening at the same time, and that term's applied in a lot of different ways. You know, people use it. Um, certainly in terms of various infectious diseases are kind of co-occurring. Um, they use it certainly in terms of you know obesity and other comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And I think that that term can absolutely apply here in a climate context, right? So we have a syndemic going on of increased climate-induced stresses of all sorts, um, as you well know, and that's happening on top of these comorbidities. Um, so uh, in some sense, when we think about resilience opportunities, obviously people like me are really focused on, on the climate stressors uh, and also, we really need to think about these comorbidities and the social structures that are causing people to be vulnerable um, because the exposures are increasing. So we really want to be working on reducing the vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's like, I guess, we look at other disasters and it is just uh, this massive challenge of all things involved. And you realize it's more than just the heat isn't. It's all the different social elements that come into that. It's the environment. It's, it's everything around it. And just on environment, I wanted to ask as well around, we're talking about humans here and the human impacts, but what about the impacts on animals, wildlife, the natural ecosystems? Are there long-term impacts by heat waves? Do these cause longer-term problems to the environment that we haven't kind of considered yet? Yeah, and so, and we're still understanding some of this, right? And so, you know, as we experience this as humans, certainly we can imagine how animals are feeling it, right? So they're, they're, we don't know, or at least there's still a lot more to be learned about the impacts of heat on, on animal life, um, but certainly on ecosystems more broadly, we get these cascading hazards, right? And so heat is associated with drought, which is associated with fire, right? And as you get into these, you know, drought and fire impacts, then the impacts on ecosystems are dramatic, right? You can't escape them. Um, and so um, this kind of relationship between heat, drought, and fire is, I think, one of the major drivers that we're going to see of ecological change in coming decades, right? We know that climate change is going to cause, you know, a migration of ecosystems. Um, and what does that look like, right? Well, the trees aren't going up and walking, right? Like, like the migration <laughs> of ecosystems is when you see a change like this, right? Like when the forest burns enough times and then it becomes a grassland or it becomes a, a, a semi-arid, you know, shrub area. Um, and that's, that's what, you know, heat is a big part of that, right? In so much as it leads to the drying and to the uh, other disturbances. I was a few years ago, I was driving through America and uh, through Arizona actually, and um, I pulled over the side of the road to have a look out the window and I could hear the sounds of the cobras slithering through the grass. Or I was in my head, but I'm sure I could hear the cobras everywhere. And is that sort of environment, surely in Arizona, where there's just like cactuses and cobras everywhere, like is that going to be as impacted as somewhere in Florida, for example. And are there, are there differences between that urban heat island effect where you have those urban environments um, that might not be as prone or as exposed to disasters and, and heat waves that we have at the moment? But as we move forward, we're going to see that increasing heat and somewhere like Arizona is pretty hot already. So uh, what are the key differences for those communities, if there are any? No, that's a really good point, right? Where this is, the climate change plays out very differently in different regions and different ecosystems. 
And so if you take a place like Arizona, uh, on the one hand, let's just look at the human systems for a second, right? Uh, many people have access to air conditioning, right? Those that don't have access mm-hmm. to air conditioning in Arizona, that's, that's already a, a massive climate injustice you know, before we even get into climate change, right? Um, because you really do need air conditioning a good part of the year. And so you might say, okay, that's a place that's more adapted to deal with the heat. Uh, but certainly this summer, the extended, you know, biblical scale heat wave that's hit Arizona, it's like, oh, even the, you know, those that are ready for heat, in theory, are now seeing it really strain, right? And that the people who have access to air conditioning, well, certainly the energy costs, the stress on the grid, like the infrastructure is really taxing. And those who maybe didn't have access, but were able to get by, you know, in, in ways that are were never optimal, you know, people who are finding shelter, you know, during the day and and public spaces or turning, living in a car and turning on the engine to get air conditioning episodically. I mean, that was never a good situation, but it's no longer, it's no longer viable. Right. Mm. And so we were seeing that, you know, when you get to the ecosystems, as you said, like the, the desert, you know, scorpions and snakes, like, are they, are they going to be affected or not? Well, I, I think that a lot of that's still a matter of research, right? We can see this continued migration of ecosystems. And as you said, you could hear snakes of the rings because deserts are very vibrant places, right? And so there's a lot of life out there. Um, and there are a lot of different kinds of deserts, right? And, you know, there are some that have more life in different ecosystems than others. And so those places will change in a significant manner. Um, will it feel as dramatic to us as seeing, you know, the, uh, the mountains of the Alps or the Rockies burn? Well, it might not feel as dramatic to us, um, but it's still a significant ecological change. So in terms of impacts then, because, I mean, we've talked a lot about the human impact uh, and I know we we're having a little bit of a giggle at the start because there's been some me- media around out there around, you know, even heat waves impacting on how we travel as human beings that, you know, as we fly, there potentially be more turbulence and, and we're giggling because it's, you know, first world problem in, in the in the context of people dying from, from heat waves. But I, it, it is a conversation to have around what are the impacts on heat waves more broadly than um, just on us as individuals and and someone, I guess, passing away from that? You know, what impact does that have on our economies? What impact does that have on how we travel and how we live our lives as individuals? Yeah, right. And so you're right that it, that does feel a little um, uh, trivial sometimes to think about a bumpy airplane flight when people are dying. But to your point, it's very real economically, right? What is this mm. doing for how we get around, you know, what's happening right now with tourism in Southern Europe, right? And so tourism is a major industry. And I think sometimes we think of it as a luxury industry. And yes, the ability to travel is a luxury, but it's, it's a bedrock of the economy in these places, yep. right? And if summer tourism is no longer an option around parts of the Mediterranean, that's a big deal. Um, and I think that it's important to focus on these things, um, even if it, you know, one feels a little guilty talking about that as opposed to, you know, direct death and people who are, are really, you know, agricultural workers it, it, you know, who can't escape exposures. Um, but when we talk about acting to mitigate climate change and people talk about the expense of it, well, let's talk about the expense of not doing anything. Yeah. Right. I mean, and if it's a changing, if it's negatively affecting the airline industry, if it's negatively affecting the tourist industry, right, this all should be added up as to the cost of inaction um, to further justify the need to act more aggressively uh, to rein in the warming. I think looking at those photos from Greece at the moment and seeing people being evacuated from the fires there, it's like people are finally starting to see the impacts of climate change firsthand. They're able to ignore it up to this point. Yes, it's getting a bit hot, turn the air conditioner on. But when you start to see those sort of impacts, it's actually getting so hot it's unbearable. 
Um, do you think it's going to drive people to do anything about climate change? It feels like this action maybe now will actually lead to something because it's been so long of people being talked at around what's coming and the heat waves might be that trigger when it gets so hot, you go, finally, I've just got to go and buy an electric car or stop flying so much or do something different in my life because this is actually a real threat to us now. Yeah, I mean, I think there has been tipping and it's interesting, you know, you living in Australia and me living in the United States, I think um, our countries are somewhat similar in, in the pace at which, the slow pace at which this has taken hold, right, versus some other countries, mm. but still different context, right? And every country is different. Every part of every country is different. Um, but I will say from where I sit, um, you know, yeah, things have absolutely changed. You know, I teach a lot of students climate change science and climate policy. And it was until recently, you'd ask students what they want to know at the beginning of the semester. And it was always, oh, what do I say to my relatives or friends who, who don't believe in this or who are skeptical of climate change? I don't get that question very much anymore. You know, and so that means not just that the young students are convinced. It means that, the, you know, uh, you know, crazy Uncle Bob is convinced also. Right. Because they don't feel a need to answer to him on this. And so yeah. I think. I think that you're right, that the awareness is definitely there. And we have seen this affect action. So, you know, uh, several Western European countries have really been champions on climate action for decades, while the rest of us kind of tried to catch up. Um, but there have been key events, you know, to say that the European heat wave of 2003 really did have policy impacts, right? And, and so these extreme events do wake people up. Um, we obviously have a tremendous challenge and we aren't uh, yet doing enough, um, but I think we are at least if it's not a tipping point, it's at least a hard curve that we're going around as, as people kind of wake up to the need for action. Mm, yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, to be honest with you, as, as we said earlier, those comments from the UN Secretary were really sobering this morning for, for me, kind of reading those. I mean, anecdotally in our minds, you kind of think, oh, where are we? Are we just stagnating? But, you know, those comments that in a sense we're almost going backwards, that's pretty. That's a pretty stark thing to think about in, in your mind. But I just want to unpack a little bit more because we were just talking recently around um, around that kind of urban versus rural and the different impacts there. But can you kind of step us through because um, we know that urban heat islands are a critical issue, especially within cities, uh, and we know that you know some of our most disadvantaged individuals within our communities are living in some of these areas. Can you kind of step us through about how these how these heat islands contribute to the intensity and frequency frequency of heat waves that we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So the urban heat island is a really uh, important phenomenon to think about in terms of our health and the impacts as well as our opportunities to try to alleviate heat. So cities are, are can, can be several degrees um, hotter than, than the surrounding areas. Um, and this has to do with, of course, all of the concrete, the impervious surfaces that you know, absorb heat and retain it. Uh, the urban heat island tends to be greatest at night. And that is largely because it's so hard for the cities to radiate heat out compared to more open areas in the rural environment. Um, and of course, uh, greenery, um, has various roles to play, right? You know, certainly with trees and other green spaces evaporating moisture uh, and also other, other ways in which having more open green spaces can help ventilate the city. Um, I would also add that, that a key thing that trees do is provide shade. And so mm. one, the urban heat island was often talked about in terms of the temperature, which is real and important. Yeah. Um, and the fact that that's biggest at night is a big deal because that's so important for our health to be able to cool down at night. But really when you think about heat, and your experience of it, um, the ability to get into the shade is a hugely big deal, yeah. right? And the air temperature can be the same, but but being able to protect yourself like that um, and making sure that people have access to kind of these shaded environments, I think can be really critical for outdoor activity. 
So uh, all of that contributes to, sorry, all of that contributes to, to, to some of these impacts in, in urban areas. I was just going to say, I think that's a, a, a really important point in terms of, uh, and, and I think we'll unpack this question a little bit more in a minute, but uh, in terms of solutions that we look at, we need to ensure that we're not driving further inequity through those solutions. So, okay, you can put air conditioning in a building, but how many people actually have access to that and 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 are the most disadvantaged individuals going to have access to that? Whereas a tree, if we think for some of our homeless population, you might say, well, hey, it's not the most perfect solution. We'd love to get them into an air-conditioned um, air room. We know that's the most effective measure, but hey, if we can look at more simple, effective measures that uh, that help to kind of get some of these individuals uh, into an area that's a little a, a little more safe. Um, you know, that's a positive thing. So, what are some of those strategies that you know we we, we have a lot of like uh, town planners, city planners that listen to the to these podcasts? What what should they be thinking about when they're planning cities, when they're planning public spaces? Yeah, and so there there are various approaches, right? And I think you've already yep. touched on a few there that. Um, Certainly, there are architectural elements, right? More energy efficient buildings, cool roofs, and the, you know, bright roofs or other materials that um, reflect the heat um, can be really valuable in, in certain, in many, many cities. Um, green spaces, not just for cooling the environment, but also providing refuges, right? Places that people can get to that are cooler are also very important. And the integration of blue infrastructure, you know, like water features, in, in many ways, can be can be really important. And so. You know, there's there's no, I think, silver bullet, and but there's the positive of that is there's no need for a magical technology. You know, I think that we have a lot of ways that we know how to cool cities down, um, and we know how to create these spaces. And as long as we do that, as you say, through an equity lens, right, trying to get these solutions that really work for the people who are most vulnerable, um, we should be uh, we should be able to make a lot of progress. Mm. I want to chuck a word out there and say, is this like how we can plan for the new normal? Well, I mean, it's it's how we have to plan for the continuing change, of course, right? I mean, uh, mm. unfortunately, there's every likelihood that we're going to be nostalgic for these kinds of conditions come 20 years from now, right? It's going to, mm. it's, we're still on the ramp of things getting worse. Um, but I would say that the new normal is thinking in ter- in these terms, right? Um, and so thinking about uh, more, just you know, as climate hazards become more severe and as we don't have this advantage of this kind of stationary condition where like we build our cities under certain conditions and we still experience those conditions, but oh no, it's changing underneath us. Um, designing for that change is I think the new normal for thinking about how we build our communities. And are there any places where you've seen this happen? Like we've seen communities now trying to build that urban tree canopy or put in those sort of um, heat wave management strategies type thing. Are there anywhere where there's sort of got some good case studies of this happening at the moment? Yeah, you know, and, and, and it is an exciting time in thinking about how to build our cities um, to be more climate resilient. And so, you know, specifically with respect to heat, uh, you know, you can name any number of cities that are working on their urban canopy, right? And just getting more trees out there. I think that that's a, that's really has a lot of momentum behind it. Um, there are massive initiatives here in the States, you know, uh, where the government is putting in funds specifically for getting, you know, urban forestry um, really going in a, in a serious way. Um, you also have really exciting stuff happening, I think, in cool surfaces, better, better building materials and pavements. Cities like uh, Phoenix, Arizona here in the United States, one that I'm familiar with, and there are others in other parts of the world that have done a lot of good work on that. And then, you know, of course, cities that have sprung up in areas that are already very hot. So, you know, mine comes, of course, to the Gulf region, um, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, places like that, where, you know, a lot of the way that those cities have dealt with heat is 
not a picture of equity, right? It's basically making <laughs> sure that like the people with the money get to stay inside air conditioning, right? And never see the outside. But also um, there's been some really uh, exciting uh, uh, rediscovery or innovations built upon traditional technologies of how you keep buildings cool um, mm. in those environments. So um, there are a lot of interesting solutions being explored, I think, in cities around the world. The, the, the indoor um, ski slope in Dubai is pretty nice and cool, but yeah, it's not really designed for us. For <laughs> yeah, the general population. I have that in mind of the inequitable <laughs> solutions, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we've been looking at heat waves so far, I guess, in this conversation at a bit of a micro level, at the person level, at that kind of community level. But if we had to zoom out and look at the problem from a macro perspective, um, we know through climate change, we talk about, um, you know, global migration um, in, in the Asia Pacific area. We have an issue with rising sea levels and with a lot of our island nations looking at, you know, potentially in 10, 20, 30, 40 years having to, to in a sense, migrate because their homes won't be there anymore. But in, in terms of heat waves, could we potentially get to a spot where communities from a heat perspective are unlivable? Yeah, and so it's going to depend on the infrastructure. Right. Yep. And so, you know, as we know, you can you can keep the heat out if you have enough energy um, and enough money. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think I think the way we might end up seeing this is in the impact that heat's having would have on livelihoods. Right. And so we're doing some work uh, trying to ramp up some work anyway, working with some pastoralist communities in East Africa and the kind of exposures they're getting hmm. now. You know, a poor community will continue to suffer through that as long as they can. But um, if it ends up affecting the cattle. Right, or if it ends up affecting um, the grasses that the cattle are, are feeding on, then you'll end up with this kind of heat driving, you know, again, the cascading effect, heat driving other factors that cause mm. people to leave. The question of whether people will pick up and move because of the heat alone, I think is a, an interesting question. I think it will affect perhaps patterns in, in you know, the desirability of locations and for people who have the economic um, power to choose where they live, right? Mm, um, yeah. And then in places where people maybe uh, aren't choosing as much but are being forced to become climate migrants, my expectation is that some of the other cascading impacts of heat will materialize faster than the sense like, oh, this place is just too hot. Yeah, um, yeah. Eventually you could get there, but I, I, think, I think something else will happen first. Too many cobras in some of those places. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but is, well, that's an interesting as an interesting point in terms of Ben. Um, has there been any research to kind of look at what some of those kind of global highways of migration may look like? Like, obviously, we know in in Asia Pacific, there's been some work looking at people moving down in towards you know the south. Has there been any work to kind of go? If this was to happen and we and we got some of those cascading impacts, like here are some of the countries that could, in, in a sense, have some of those mass migration events happening on their doorstep. Oh, yeah. I mean, and so and again, often it's not heat directly. Right. But it's mm. heat related to other things. And it's just it's very difficult. So there's a lot of analysis of questions of what's going to happen. Right. Certainly. Yep. Um, you know, ob the obvious ones like with sea level rise, as you mentioned, the island nations and, and Bangladesh. Um, when you come into things like heat, often that, that combination of heat and drought, uh, people see the threats of that happening in parts of the Middle East, East Africa, Central America, uh, you know, places where it's already quite hot, right? Mm. Um, and so the challenge, part of the challenge here is knowing it when you see it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's all the UN efforts here around, of course, loss and damage and, you know, policies on climate migrants. It's like, how do you decide someone's a climate migrant, mm. right? Like, we, we, I would argue, you know, here in the U.S., of course, there's a lot of folks on the southern border. I think a lot of those people are climate migrants. But 
it's like, well, they're fleeing, uh, you know, a despotic government or they're here because they're looking for economic opportunity. It's like, right, they're also getting whacked by climate stresses that are destabilizing the government, that are making their agriculture less reliable, all of this. But then is that a climate migration? You know, we're still debating whether like the Syrian yeah. civil war was a climate event, right? And so, uh, and, and I think that to some extent that doesn't matter too much, um, right? Like, like what matters is really being able to cope with instability in general. Mm. But I think it might end up mattering a lot if we're going to think about any, you know, status afforded to climate migrants, right? If there's a responsibility felt by the countries that have caused climate change to give special status to those who are migrating because of climate through things like loss and damage mechanisms under the UN, for example, if it, it, it's always going to be gray. So it's yeah. going to be a gray area. And, uh, and that's going to, people don't wait until the water's at their knees and then move out, right? Then you move out before the water's at your knees because the, the soils become saline and you can't crop mm. anymore, right? Or because a, a storm blew through and you don't want to rebuild that third time. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's going to be the challenge, I think. Well, among many challenges, the, the, the real challenge is how do those people um, cope and then thrive in a new place. Um, but for, I think from a perspective of policy and legalism, uh, defining a climate migrant is going to be a very difficult problem. And it is hard to kind of illustrate the risk to, I feel, with heat waves when you've got, say, a major a bushfire compared to a flood. People are more scared of the bushfire, and it's like the rising sea levels. It's clear, it's visible. It's not a silent killer like heat waves is. It's easy to see. Um, I don't know how heat waves is going to go when it kind of comes to that sort of, I don't know, arrangements with other governments to bring people in because it's not as easy to see as their island is going underwater. Absolutely. Great point. I mean, I think it's, it's hard enough to see it in those more obvious cases and to really define it. And uh, with heat, it's going to be totally invisible, right? Who's a climate migrant because of a heat wave? Mm, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I think it's, it's weird, isn't it? Like I find people when they retire, they kind of move somewhere nicer. It's like people move to Florida or in Australia, move to the Gold Coast is to find that nice temperature. I just don't know where I'll move to next when it's like it becomes too hot to live in the center of Australia or some parts of Arizona, for example. You might go and move to the coast and it just becomes a, over time a bigger thing and then it's for those countries that can afford it, it's easy to do, but I guess it's the countries that can't afford it. Um, well, that's where the struggle will be and that's where it needs intervention and regulation and those sorts of things. But if we look towards the future, what do you see as, as the next steps, I guess, and in terms of what we'll experience, how we'll adapt, like what do you see the next 10, 20 years looking like in this space? Well, in the space of heat, I think that, you know, we always think about the acute and the long-term approaches, right? So in an acute sense, you know, getting people an ability to get cool when they have to through better warning systems, through social um, networks built to, to, to make sure people are being checked in on um, get, you know, subsidizing energy perhaps in ways that make sure that, that the poor can cool themselves down. Um, these are all, all things that we're working on. And, you know, here in Baltimore, the city has done a lot of great work on building these resiliency hubs, right? These kind of centers in neighborhoods that are places that are going to make sure that fans or air conditioners get out and that there's a place for people to come to when they need to in the heat. Um, and and, the, or, and you know, the code red system is being upgraded to make sure that the warnings are getting to the right people. Um, so there's going to be a lot of this acute response going on. And then I think over the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see a lot more emphasis. We're already seeing it, right, on climate proofing our cities. And from the perspective of heat, we've already talked about some of what that means, right, in terms of uh, making sure that people have access to cooling refuges and that the city itself might be, can be cooled down through landscape interventions. Um, again, it's, 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 a, it's an anxious time for very good reason. It's also an exciting time to be, uh, I think, having this new emphasis on how we really view our built environments and our, and our urban landscapes in the context 
of the natural world um, and how we can make a more resilient and just, just better functioning city. When you talk about the physical stuff, that made me think. So Josh and I have been a few times out into a part of Australia where they have, it's very hot, it's a mining community, and they've built these dugouts they live in, basically holes under the ground where their home is completely contained under the side of a hill, and there's, that exists in other parts of the world as well. And it is just hot there. It's like 45, 50 degrees Celsius regularly during the summertime, um, so like 120, 130 uh, Fahrenheit, and it is hot, um, but they've kind of learned to adapt. And I'm wondering if other communities now, the, the places that are experiencing heat uh, more recently, their, their solution is, well, just turn the air conditioner on or, or get a, something else just to sort of cool it down in a modern way because it's kind of trendy compared to those old school methods and um, whether to adapt to what they've done back in some other parts of the world. We need to kind of look at what we've done in the past. But surely there are sort of some of those things that we've taken – in Arizona or parts of America that get heat regularly that we can just kind of use in other communities? Do you see much of that sort of stuff happening? Yeah, and I think that, that some of what you're describing and taking some of those traditional and historic methods is a real opportunity area. Because as you say, there's a lot of like, you know, use the example of Arizona. It's like, well, a lot of the way Arizona cools itself down is by pumping the air conditioning, right? And so, mm. and that's, and, and there's definitely a role for that, right? Um, but if we can think about kind of architectural solutions that, again, some of these uh, cultures in the Middle East and other uh, parts of Asia that have been very hot for a long time have used, as well as behavioral modifications, right? Like how do we uh, make sure that, that we're living in a way that's consistent with a different environment? There's huge opportunity because, as you know, I mean, people have been living in really hot places pretty much forever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's an incompatibility right now between the systems we have in areas that are not as hot and, what, and the heat that's coming. But uh, I think in most cases, you know, and for much of the world, um, the heat itself is going to be something that we can adapt to because we, we know that, that human societies know how to do that. Um, you know, it's coming in the context of a lot of other change. Um, but if we can learn from the past uh, as well as innovate technologically, um, we really should be able to accomplish a lot. So do you feel at the moment, Ben, I, I'm kind of getting a sense with Heatwave that, um, you know, when you look at some of the climate crisis, you kind of go, some of the solutions are are yet to kind of be discovered. Like we know there are going to be some things that we're going to need to put some smart minds towards to kind of think through and come up with new technologies. But I almost get the sense in this space with heat waves, in terms of um, combating heat waves, I feel like we've already got all the tools there. Is, is that is that correct? Is it just a matter of putting those the right puzzle pieces in the right space and getting people and government to invest in the right areas uh to combat this challenge, like we have all the tools there. It's just about let's let's just go and get it done. Uh, I think that's accurate, but and it's a really hard puzzle, right? Mm. So just to take a couple examples, right? So like we're planting a lot of trees in urban environments. A lot of those trees aren't thriving. Why? Yeah. Because of all the underground infrastructure, because of all the impervious surfaces. Like we're like you throw a tree in a in a tree pit in a city, and it's not necessarily going to be great, right? Um, yeah. And so so that's a, a large infrastructure problem. And then we've got just you know problems in the, in the way we run like our financing. So for example, uh, one, you know, personal uh, frustration here and in the work that I'm doing is um, we live in a part of the world here in Baltimore um, where a lot of people live in these brick, we call them row homes, you know, it's in your standard row of houses, yep. pretty much flat roofs. It costs the same amount to put a white roof on that as it does to put a dark roof, right? There's no reason that we shouldn't be putting white roofs on all these things. It cools down those upstairs bedrooms a tremendous amount. So you have a huge health benefit, especially the people who don't have air conditioning. Mm. If you're in a poor renter dominated neighborhood, who's putting that white roof on? Right? Mm. Not the landlord. Like, why are yeah. they going to go out there and do that? Right? Not yeah. the person, not the tenant. Right? 
Um, government actually doesn't really like government can try to subsidize that, but how do you incentivize the landlord to even take that subsidy, right? Yeah. Uh, and so like these, we have all these like dumb problems, right? It's like why can't we solve this, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and so I think therefore like and that's all part of this puzzle, right? It's like is it doable? Well, yes. Like will we do it? To be determined. So, so what can I, I think you bring up a really good point there, like government, it's probably something we haven't kind of touched on in this conversation. What can governments be doing? Like, as you said, like incentivizing tax, like, are you seeing anything in the world around governments kind of being quite progressive in this space? Or is it something that is really lagging behind at the moment? And it's something that we do need to look at governments need to think about how they can incentivize or push some of these strategies or be a, a collaborative force in this space. Yeah, collaborative force, I think, is exactly the way that that's a great way to put it, right? Because government certainly has a role to play, and a lot of that will be creating in these enabling environments, right? How do you properly incentivize various private sector actors mm. to get involved as well, right? Because a lot of this, you know, is going to come down to things like the, the electric utilities, it's going to come down to um, the insurance companies, it's going to come down to the uh, healthcare systems, many of which are privatized, at least in the United States, um, and to the, you know the developers uh, yeah. who are who are building uh, private land, uh, building on private land, and so it's going to vary a lot depending on which country you're in, because we all have different laws and different government structures. Uh, but I think that um, government has a very important role to play in terms of setting signals um, yeah. and creating these you know the proper enabling environments to to get um, the entire private economy working in the right direction. In terms of government, and I want to ask just uh, finally around early warning systems, because if everything else we've got, um, everything else working, and we just need to have some sort of trigger uh, when a heat wave is on the horizon to get people to take action, what's the latest on early warning systems? And do you see those improving to provide that early notification for heat waves in the future? Yeah, you know, heat waves are pretty easy from an early warning perspective. Um, it's a large-scale kind of atmospheric phenomenon. Um, yeah, sometimes an intensification might catch you a little bit by surprise if you get a big feedback, right? But um, but in general, we're pretty good at predicting heat waves out certainly several days in advance, you know, to a week or two. And mm. um, and most of your reaction to a heat wave doesn't require like split-second decision making, right? Like like oh, uh, that amount of lead should be adequate. Um, mm. You also don't need that long a lead time, right? It's not like you need to get a bunch of sandbags in place or something. So I mean, I think. I think the warnings are actually, from a physics perspective, probably already adequate. Okay. Now, from a communications perspective, right, and uh, and and uh, just kind of having the wherewithal to act on them, um, that's where the challenge is, right? Like, how do who is getting in touch with the uh, population experiencing homelessness, right, to make sure mm. that they are uh, taken care of in a way that's consistent with what they want of their lives, that they're not going to say, "No, I don't want to go to the place you're trying to take me." Um, how do we uh, make sure that people take heat seriously? You know, so there's been this move to name heat waves, the name that we, the way that we should name storm, that we name storms. We've never named heat waves before. Okay, now we're naming heat waves and we're giving them these scary names, right? Um, will that help? Maybe it's still not as scary as seeing a satellite image of a hurricane coming at you, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's uh, but maybe these kinds of messaging will help us to make more use of the early warning systems that, quite frankly, I think we already have uh, adequate predictive capability for. I think a lot of those systems as well, I've just noticed in Australia, we're moving with the modern times in Australia now, like Apple have got that all sort of rain notification from the weather app, which we haven't had for years, but it's been everywhere else in the world. And so those sort of things, I think it kind of takes it to be, 
in your palm before you do something with it. And I think there's lots of things on social media and you scroll through that every day around warnings for this or that. But once it becomes relevant to you and you sort of see the action and the implications of it and you can feel the heat and you can see people struggling by it, maybe people will take action then. Yep, yep. Yeah. But I think it, it, I think you made a great point, Ben. It's 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 more about not the system in itself of uh, of the you know the physics of predicting it. We've got that. It's more about the comms because you're right. You know, mm. how are the most vulnerable? Where are they? Where do they consume information? They they may not. They may be so vulnerable. They may not have a phone and can can access social media. I know we we tend to go. What's the what's the silver bullet social media? But it's not the silver bullet for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. And and that notion of understanding risk and being able to put it into context, I think, is fascinating. I mean, that was a recent conversation here in Australia. We we found that a lot of people took floods a lot less ser- less seriously than bushfires and. People were kind of asking, well, why you wouldn't run into a bushfire? So why do you enter floodwaters? It's it's the, the same risk is there and the hazards, but there's almost this risk perception that we need to work through with people around how they actually understand that risk for them personally. But as we wrap up this conversation, I know we could probably sit here uh, for all hours of the day having this conversation. We know it's a little bit late. You're in the states with us tonight, joining us. But one question we kind of like to leave the podcast with, with all of our guests, is really understanding how they got into this field. Andrew and I, ourselves, are engineers, and kind of just fell into this uh, disaster and emergency management space, and kind of being really intentional and calling out some pathways so we can get more people working in this space, more great minds thinking about these problems. So for you, Ben, how did you end up uh, in this space? What sparked your interest in heat waves and climate science? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I'm a child of the eighties. Um, I don't know if you guys did this in Australia at the time, but um, you know, you'd go out on trick or treating here in the United States and you'd have these little boxes that UNICEF would give you to collect money for East Africa because the famine's going on there. And so I, like, these are like, like early memories that are saying like, like really understanding that a lot at that time, a lot of these, you know, tremendous human impacts were related to the climate. Mm. Um, and so I think that, I, you know, just growing up with that awareness, I was always interested in saying, okay, well, obviously, uh, you know, we want to make a difference in the world. And so I thought, you know, well, something in this, in this space of trying to figure out um, how you can do something like avoid a famine by growing more food. Now, as you grow older, you learn that famines are more complicated than that, right? But, yeah. but that got me that got me interested in this idea of saying, okay, well, I, I how do we how do we take on these physical stresses, right? Like how how can we understand them better? And then you know, like any of us, we just kind of uh, meander through uh, life trying to figure out the right path. And so I went through a few different fields, like uh, bio, you know, molecular biology and agriculture and, and these other areas, trying to find a niche. And it it, it just so happened, I think that. Um, I ended up getting involved in some projects that were very much about climate disasters, you know, and so I got the opportunity to work on some Hurricane Mitch reconstruction um, in, in Honduras uh, when I was a student in graduate school and uh, then got to, to work on some drought-related issues in the Middle East uh, after that. And so um, through that kind of accumulation of experiences really got pushed into really the climate space of thinking about this. And, and honestly, climate change came later for me, right? It was, it was more about, um, about natural hazards and extreme events and then, of course, climate change just makes that all the harder. There's certainly lots to keep you busy, I'm sure, in this space. There's, I mean, with heat waves and every other disaster happening and the climate what's is changing around us so rapidly, it's, um, I'm sure it's a fascinating space to work in. And certainly appreciate your insights on the show today. We'll post more about uh, yourself and your research on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. Dr. Ben Zajcek, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Great. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed the conversation. That's all we have time for on the show today. 
Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.